This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Gun violence is in the headlines these days because the actor Alec Baldwin, a week ago Thursday, shot and killed one person and wounded another on a film set. The story made headlines the world over, and it continues to do so over a week later. Other stories about shootings, though, rarely rate that kind of day-after-day or even hour-after-hour attention, and certainly not outside the locality in which they occur. There was a mass shooting on Monday in a Boise, Idaho shopping mall, for example. Two people were killed, and four people were injured. The shooter also was injured in a shootout with police. He subsequently died of his injuries. Unlike the Alec Baldwin story, though, the national news media has been slow in updating the story, and whatever updates they do provide are quite sparse. Here's one story that should have gotten that kind of hour-after-hour, day-after-day attention, but didn't. I doubt most people ever even heard about it. It occurred on August 11th in Altamonte Springs, a city in Florida just north of Orlando. The victim was 21-year-old Shamaya Lin. She was fatally shot in the back of the head while participating in a Zoom conference call with her co-workers. The shooter was her son, her two-year-old son. The toddler found the loaded gun in his Paw Patrol backpack, which is where his 22-year-old father bizarrely put the loaded gun for safekeeping. I say bizarrely because Paw Patrol is a huge hit with the preschool crowd. As Forbes magazine put it, the show is, quote, essentially a superhero show for toddlers, unquote. The toddler in question liked playing with everything Paw Patrol, and that included his backpack. The toddler's father wasn't at home at the time, but he's since been charged with negligent manslaughter and unsafe storage of a firearm. And so, the topic for this week is one we tackled before in episode 49 during last Passover, gun control and what Judaism has to say about it. According to the advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety, so far in 2021, there have been at least 284 unintentional shootings by children, resulting in 116 deaths and 183 injuries nationally. The advocacy group predicts that the final number of such incidents this year very likely will exceed the record set in 2017, in which there were 383 accidental shootings by children and at least 156 deaths. That there were at least 284 unintentional shootings by children this year means that roughly once every day in the United States, a child unintentionally shoots someone, and very often that someone is him or herself. These are frightening statistics, but they shouldn't be a total surprise. Researchers estimate that as many as 5.4 million children in the United States in 2021 live in households with at least one loaded, unlocked gun they can get their hands on. Children, of course, aren't the only ones doing the shooting. Overall, so far in 2021, 
according to the Gun Violence Archive. From January 1st through September 15th, 14,516 people died from gun violence in the United States. That's 1,300 more people who died so far this year than died during the same period in 2020, and it represents an increase of 9%. Texas and California topped the list with 196 gun deaths and 153 deaths, respectively, followed by Illinois with 141 gun deaths, Georgia with 104 deaths, and Ohio with 101. Mass shootings also are on the rise. A mass shooting is an incident in which four or more people are killed or wounded by gunfire. That doesn't include the shooter, by the way. Through September 15th, there were 498 mass shootings across the country, or just under two mass shootings per day. That's an increase so far this year of 15% over last year, when there were a total of 611 mass shootings, which is a rate of about three mass shootings every two days. As we saw on Monday in Boise, the number of mass shootings continues to climb. Here are some more facts to consider, which I also mentioned in episode 49. In 2016, the American Journal of Medicine provided some truly frightening statistics that were based on a study of mortality data from 23 highly developed nations in the year 2010. Among other things, Out of these 23 highly developed nations, the United States accounted for 82% of all firearm deaths, 90% of all firearm deaths among women, 91% of all firearm deaths among children up to 14 years old, 92% of all firearm deaths among youths aged 15 to 24 years old. Now here's the most frightening statistic. The United States has only half the population of all the other 22 high-income nations combined that were included in that American Journal of Medicine study. The study also found that Americans are 25 times more likely to be violently killed with a gun, six times more likely to be accidentally killed with a gun, eight times more likely to commit suicide using a gun, and 10 times more likely to die from a firearm death overall. Then there's this. According to a 2003 study published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, an estimated 41% of gun-related homicides and 94% of gun-related suicides would never have occurred if guns weren't available. So what is government at all levels doing about it? Not very much, at least not very much that's positive. There isn't much hope anytime soon for legislative action to strengthen gun control laws on the federal level. There's even less hope for that in states controlled by Republicans. Two mass shootings within a week in March left 18 people dead, eight in Atlanta and 10 in Boulder, Colorado. The two incidents coming so close together prompted Democrats in Congress and President Biden at the White House to renew their calls for more effective gun control laws. Biden, for his part, urged the Senate to immediately pass two House-passed bills that are designed to close some serious loopholes in the system of background checks. He also called for a ban on assault weapons. 
The Democrats, though, have only 50 votes in the Senate. And, assuming that all 50 senators would vote for such laws, and at least one likely won't, West Virginia's Joe Manchin, they still have no hope of getting the 10 Republican votes needed to move forward on gun control. So, these calls from the Democrats amount to little more than hot air. On the other hand, in many Republican-dominated states, lawmakers are actually making it easier for people to get guns, not harder. Thanks to new laws enacted this year, for example, people no longer need a permit to carry a handgun in Tennessee and Iowa. The Iowa law also loosened other gun restrictions. Indiana, on July 1st, got rid of its application fee for a gun permit and made that permit valid for the holder's lifetime. Within the first 24 hours after that law took effect, 7,136 people applied for the free lifetime permit, overwhelming the Indiana State Police's firearms licensing website. Other Republican states are considering similar, what I call, gun decontrol legislation. Clearly, Congress in its current makeup is powerless to enact new gun control measures, whereas eliminating gun control laws on the statewide level is increasingly becoming a reality. Curiously, though, a majority of voters, Republican and Democrat, want more effective gun control laws. When I first discussed this issue in episode 49, I mentioned a recent Pew Research Center survey that showed 93% of Democrats and 82% of Republicans favoring background checks for private gun sales and sales at gun shows. When it comes to banning high-capacity magazines, the kinds of magazine that can hold more than 10 or 15 rounds of ammunition, some even hold well over 100 bullets at a time, only 54% of Republicans favor such a ban, but that's still a majority of GOP voters. For Democrats, 87% favor banning these high-capacity magazines. As for banning assault-type weapons entirely, 88% of Democrats are in favor, and so are 50% of Republicans. Obviously, Republican legislators are ignoring that. They're playing up to a minority of their own voters because they're afraid of losing any votes at the polls on Election Day. That brings us to what Jewish law has to say about weapons generally, and gun controls specifically. Currently, 45 states allow people to openly carry handguns. Some states require permits for doing so, but many states don't have such requirements. Most states, thankfully, are not so permissive regarding other firearms, such as rifles and assault weapons. Openly carrying weapons of any sort including swords, spears, and bows and arrows, the common weapons in Talmudic times, is the subject of an unrelated discussion in the Babylonian Talmud tractate Shabbat. That discussion is irrelevant here except for one thing, the near-unanimous opinion of our sages of blessed memory that weapons of all kinds, quote, are nothing less than reprehensible, unquote. Unfortunately, and despite this negative opinion of them, Weapons are sometimes needed, but starting with the Torah, Halakha, Jewish law, is very stringent when it comes to anything that poses a potential danger to oneself and to others, 
and that certainly includes firearms of every sort. Torah law, for example, requires that when building a house, a person must build a parapet, a barrier of some kind, around the roof in order to prevent anyone or anything from falling off of it and injuring or killing someone. That law is found in Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. As I've often said on these podcasts, Torah law is more like chapter headings than actual law. It sets up a category under which other laws fall. So it is with the parapet law. This law is subject to the broadest interpretation possible. Thus, we're told elsewhere in the Talmud, in the tractate Bavakama, that the parapet law even prohibits keeping a damaged ladder in our homes because someone may inadvertently use it and be injured, or worse. Maimonides, in chapter 11 of his The Laws of Murder and the Preservation of Life, explains that the parapet law includes, quote, everything that is inherently dangerous and could in normal circumstances cause a person to die, unquote. Anything that fits that bill requires that every effort must be extended to prevent a dangerous item from causing an unintentional death. Other commentators also note, as Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch did in the late 19th century, that the Torah's parapet law even requires, quote, local civil authorities to intervene to have anything at all which might be dangerous removed from a person's premises, unquote. He ruled this way despite the fact that the Torah elsewhere insists on an individual's right to privacy, and because appealing to local secular authorities to help enforce Jewish law is not something often encouraged by halacha. The parapet law, though, is not the only one that deals with keeping dangerous objects unprotected. One of the laws I've mentioned in other contexts is Leviticus 19, verse 14, quote, You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind, unquote. I usually cite this commandment, this mitzvah, as prohibiting misleading people with false information but it has far broader implications, including when it comes to keeping unprotected guns in the home. The parapet law is known as a negative mitzvah, a do-not commandment. But the Shulchan Aruch, the authoritative code of Jewish law, combines it with a positive commandment. As the Shulchan Aruch puts it, quote, And so, for every stumbling block that is inherently dangerous, it is a positive commandment to remove it and to safeguard against it and to take all necessary precautions. As the Torah commands in Deuteronomy and Devarim, take utmost care and watch yourselves scrupulously. Unquote. It then adds that this positive commandment, to watch ourselves scrupulously, is violated quote, if the inherently dangerous stumbling block is not removed and effectively isolated. Unquote. Weapons, of course, are made with the intention that they can kill. A police officer or a soldier in wartime requires a gun that will perform its deadly task efficiently and with all possible speed, if the circumstances require it. The same isn't necessarily true of the homeowner or storekeeper for whom a gun is meant to provide psychological comfort and who expects the gun to deter crime without ever having to employ its deadly power. Distinction thus must be made between the offensive weapon and the defensive one. 
an AR-15, for example, versus a Colt single-action revolver. While a parapet is required for both, the nature of the protective device is necessarily different for each. The offensive weapon should be safe enough to reasonably protect against mishaps, but not so encumbered that it's virtually useless in the field. In the field, not in the home or a shopping mall. The defensive weapon should also be used if the need arises, God forbid. The Torah doesn't prohibit self-defense, as the Talmud puts it, based on a law in Sefer Shmot, the book of Exodus, quote, If someone comes to kill you, kill him first, unquote. The degree of safety against mishaps for a defensive weapon, though, must be greater because it usually is so much closer to hand. With this in mind, it's possible to argue that guns intended for self-defense or even for sport shooting must have the best available protection against accidental or unauthorized use, or else they shouldn't be manufactured. Certainly, if they're manufactured without such devices. No one should purchase them, and certainly no one should sell them. There's Jewish law that deals with to whom we may or may not sell weapons of any kind. There are safety features available for guns, but to date there are no handguns out there that provide what I consider halakhically adequate parapets. That technology is available, though, and better technologies on the drawing boards, so it's clear that such guns can be manufactured. So what can we do? For one thing, if we own a gun or guns, we need to take extremely great care to keep them from being used without adequate safeguards, and we especially need to keep them locked up in such a way that our children or any other unauthorized user can't get to them at any time or in any way. Beyond that, we need to demand that the Senate take up and pass at least the three bills the House already passed this year that deal with the issue. Both the Bipartisan Background Checks Act and the Enhanced Background Checks Act of 2021 would expand background checks on people who want to either purchase or transfer firearms, among other things, including closing several loopholes in current law. Then there's the Violence Against Women Act, which includes a provision that would close the so-called boyfriend loophole that allows boyfriends to purchase firearms even if they were convicted of abusing the women they were dating or of stalking them. Senate Republicans, by and large, say they won't vote for that bill if ending the boyfriend loophole is included in it. Beyond these bills, we need to demand that the federal government ban all types of automatic assault weapons and mandate that new guns must come equipped with the latest safety technology. Death by guns has been rightfully called one of our most serious public safety issues. Every 15 minutes in this country, someone is killed by a gun. Nearly one child up to 17 years of age is killed every hour of every day in this country by a gun. All of us must act and all of us must encourage others to act as well. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org, www.shammai.org, 
www.jewishmedia.org and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the column page of my website. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.